All right, welcome back to a bonus episode of the Blasters and Blades podcast. So, hey, all you crazy sci-fi and fantasy fans, time for your daily dose of shenanigans over here at the Blasters and Blades podcast. Just three nerdy veterans geeking out over our science fiction passions and fantastical fantasies, a place where magic is king, the sky is the limit, and space is the place. So without further ado, let me tell you what we're doing right now. We're getting ready to uh, release some of the archive that we found from when we were the sci-fi shenanigans. Uh, we're going to get those up there for, for the posts that were brought down. We thought you might enjoy them. Um, and so without further ado, let us uh, let us roll that beautiful... Oh, wait, they're going to sue me. Play it. Hey, all you crazy sci-fi fans. Time for your daily dose of insanity over here at the Sci-Fi Shenanigans Podcast. Just three nerdy veterans geeking out over our science fiction passions. A place where the sky's the limit, space is a place, and nerds run the world. And without further ado... All right, welcome back to another episode of the Sci-Fi Shenanigans Podcast. Today, instead of our normal one-on-one author interview, uh, we have gathered a panel of experts in the field of space opera, uh, and they are... Well, you know what? Let me just read what I wrote, and I can pretend I've done this before. So today we've gathered some authors from the vast array of modern space opera greatness to host a panel on the various facets of the subgenre. We'll let the guests answer in alphabetical order, and if that is not alphabetical order enough for you, <clears throat> Terry, uh, I blame the uh, fine wording of uh, word perfect, and it is not my fault, so bite your tongue. All I right, blame so our education system. Well, what WordPerfect does, I think, is they just took the first letter uh, of the first name and they went with it. And I was too lazy to sort it individually. So, hush. Is WordPerfect still a thing? Yes, it is. Do you sing the ABCs? Uh, <laughs> bite your tongue. You know, that's easy. That's only four names to alphabetize by last name. <laughs> you hush. All of you. All of you will. I will get you all. I will haunt you down. Obviously, you've never had to fix the bookstore shelves. <laughs> you know what? You're all fired. You're all voted off my island. But uh, okay, so in uh, somewhat of an alphabetical-ish order, uh, we why don't we introduce the listeners to you fine, crazy people? So who are you and what kind of stuff do you write um, and wow your audience with? And we'll start with Amy. Hi, I am Amy Duboff, and I am first regardless of how we're doing this with the panel. So I, uh, so my readers dubbed me the queen of space opera uh, a few years back. I write space opera, um, and we're going to get into that subject a little bit later of what that exactly is. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I like to write the, the sci-fi stuff. It tends to be a little bit more on the space fantasy side rather than military sci-fi. And uh, I have a few book series out. My main flagship is the Catacle series, and that is now an expanded universe, and I have several co-authors working with me. I also have recently released a book in the Aeon 14 universe with M.D. Cooper, and I have a standalone Dark Stars trilogy that's more of a YA space fantasy. All right. So we're going to ignore Mixon. He doesn't exist. So J. Daniel Sawyer. Hello, I'm Jay Daniel Sawyer. Uh, I'm Jay Daniel Sawyer. I write um, hard geopolitical and sociological science fiction, sometimes very serious, such as my podcast series, The Antithesis Progression, sometimes very comical, like my series, Suave Rob's Awesome Adventures. 
and I also do um, and I also do a series of mysteries called the Clark Lantham Mysteries. So I'm all over the place, but my focus is generally on hard sociology and geopolitics and economics, as well as um, interesting characters. But you're also very well read, so which makes you the perfect guest. <laughs> if you insist. All right. Uh, and next, but not least, we have Joe Vasicek. Did I get it right on the pronunciation? You did. That's correct. It's Vasicek like cash a check. <laughs> Damn, Sorry. I wish I had that name. I'm just surprised I'm not See, last. you got to explain to all the kids what a check is. There you go. A check is... Uh, well, I don't know. What's what's a check? That's that's also what... I had to teach my NCO in the Army how to write a check. <laughs> and he couldn't understand why I had no respect for him. And when he tried to, giving the class on how to budget, I'm like, do you need me to teach you? <laughs> well, you know what you call a... Uh, Wait, we do this like on paper? You know what you oh. call a, a skydiving accident in Prague? What's that? You call it a bounce check. Oh, nice. There you go. All right. So I'm just surprised I'm not last. Anyways, uh, yeah, my name is Joe Vasicek. I write uh, a lot of science fiction. I've got a lot of books out there. Um, probably the, let's see, the biggest ones right now, there's uh, Star Wanderers is a series of novellas I wrote, and uh, Sons of the Starfarers is kind of a spinoff from that. Um, rec- my most recent release was uh, Edenfall. It's book two in the Genesis Earth trilogy. Uh, I wrote Genesis Earth about 10 years ago, and first thing I wrote, first thing I published, and uh, finishing up the trilogy only took me 10 years to get to that. So um, I've also... You're doing faster than George R. R. Martin. That is true. That is, I'm, I'm averaging more words per day than George R. R. Martin, which is uh, not difficult. I think my I think my Dutch Shepherd edges more, more words per day than George R. R. Martin. Good boy. Good boy. <laughs> there you go. All right. And finally... Mr. I'm going to complain about the alphabet, Terry Mixon. (laughs) Complain may be a little bit too rough, but are you really complaining about something when you explain it to somebody that's a little slow on picking up how it works? You know what? They say gentlemen go last without complaining. (laughs) Terry's not a gentleman. I am absolutely not a gentleman. I'm (laughs) I'm Terry Mixon, and coincidentally enough, I write space opera. So that's always good. I'm probably best known for writing in the Empire of Bones saga that that I write that is far future, that is very space opera-ish. That's it. Odds are Seska's after you just made fun of me. You just made – that was number five. The next one is number six. That would be even, and that is you. I'm glad you were here to explain it to him. JR's a little slow. Wow. How did I go off the rails? This I was. I could shoot really, really good. I shoot good. <laughs> okay. So I will help JR out now. <laughs> now that you've defined the who's speaking, uh, he went JR went over to the fine folks at Wikipedia University to see how to define the term. Um, and so I'm going to read his report. Five. Um, and, odds what? is five. Odds is five. Evens is six. It's- and you make fun of me. Jimmy. You know what? You're the one with the advanced math degree. I don't have an advanced math degree. I have an advanced chemistry degree. It's math-ish. Come on. <laughs> that doesn't help some level of math. You're losing I'm ground here, JR. Just, just move along, thing. JR. Just move along, buddy. <laughs> all right. Well, then I we know, and we know Chris is going to put all of this in there. Okay. He absolutely is. Oh, boy. Okay. Are you, can you handle the odds? 
Or do you want me to get it? I'm odd, so I'll do odds. <laughs> Sorry. Next, we'll define our terms. What is space opera? Again, in the alphabetical order by first name that JR listed them all in. Ladies, go first. Amy? All right. So I think of space opera is uh, the first thing that comes to mind is really big scope. And obviously it has to be something in space. So I think if it only takes place on a planet and you don't have any spaceships going between worlds or just floating out there in the black, then it is, uh, it, it's not in the space opera I, thing. I really like your definition that you include that space has to be involved, not just another planet like yeah, that. Right? Yeah, I mean, so, so something Earthbound, you don't have any travel other planets. No, not space. Well, opera. you know, Per never went to another planet by that's Anne. True. So, that would is, anyone so define Pern as like space it. opera? I would call no, it. No, I would define it as science fiction. It is science yeah. fiction, though. But so I was yeah. saying I like their definition because it de- included that you go to other planets. So I was complimenting her, guys. I think Daniel. I think Pern was like fantasy that was written in a time when space opera was really no, ascendant. no, it was not. It was science fiction, very oh, okay. clearly Definitely written science as science fiction. fiction. Yeah. No, no, but it couldn't be science fantasy. But it was written during an it era. Science fiction. It was written during an era when I think well, science fiction and space opera was more ascendant than fantasy. So she kind of threw in a little more science science fiction elements into it. At least that's what that's kind I of what impression she, I've got. She dumped some fantasy tropes in there but it's definitely science fiction okay she has a freaking computer in genetic engineering hmm. daniel yes uh definition of space opera i look for um stories that have a uh have a um have a scope and investment that's rather operatic in nature so um rise and fall of empires and governments um power struggles that kind of stuff also in space uh well i think of space opera as kind of uh basically epic fantasy set in space except it's not epic fantasy it has its own tropes but it's more it's more on the side of like big large empires and you know quests and and things like that and and but it's definitely got more of a science fiction edge to it so it's doesn't have it has its own set of tropes that's unique from epic fantasy but it's not like hard science fiction where it has to follow a lot of rules and stuff. You can actually have magic, which you know, FDL is basically just another form of magic. And uh, yeah. It, you need not the long paragraphs of telling me how a missile works. I like that. <laughs> well, I can have that too. I don't like the long paragraphs of telling me how a missile works. I don't care how a missile works. <laughs> <laughs> and the not a gentleman, but Terry will still go last. Terry. I think my opinion of it is a mix of, of Amy's and Joe's interpretation. I agree with both of, of what they said. I just want to mix it all together and say yes to both of them. So, yes, it's his definition. <laughs> okay, you're going to have to go ahead and work with us here, JR. You know, people have gone before. <laughs> the listeners can mix it all together. That's kind of cheating. Is it? I believe that space opera is, like Amy said, it's something with a grand scale. It has to take place in space. There is the grand adventure element, but I also believe very much like what Joe said, that the epic fantasy flipped around is very similar to what space opera is. It's not epic fantasy, but it does have its own tropes, and it's very similar to epic fantasy in its own way. 
That's what I think. I think the biggest similarity is the grand scheme of everything. Well, in that, if, if you're, if you're going to go that way, then family saga and historical fiction both belong in the same family, which actually works out really well for my definition as well. Yeah, I could, I could see that. Right. All right, I so figured you'd be been... more of a, of a bio of a space tyrant kind of guy there, Dan. Oh, I love Bio of a Space Tyrant, but I also like... It's a like, great series. Oh, it really is. I also love Dune, um, and I also love... Um, and for the same reasons, I love family sagas Hello? like Ken Follett Hello? stuff. What the fuck is that? That's somebody's phone going off. <laughs> oh. I didn't even know it was there. Excuse yeah, me like, as I smother it. Like Ken Follett stuff Perfect. and Herman Woke stuff. For me, that's all sort of of a piece, so I approach Space Opera looking through that kind of a lens. I like um, the Empire of Silence series by Chris Reducio from Daw. It's it's very much Dune esque in that aspect. It's and it is actually the bio of a tyrant. The first book. Nice. It starts off with "Let me tell you why I'm here on, in my jail cell because I destroyed an entire solar system." Type thing. They had it coming. Now that uh, we've defined our terms, um, I went to the fine folks over at Wikipedia University, where all the great degrees are from, to see how they defined it. Uh, so here's what they had to say. Space opera is a subgenre of science fiction that emphasizes space warfare, melodramatic adventure, interplanetary battles, chivalric romance, and risk-taking. Set mainly or entirely in outer space, it usually involves conflict between opponents possessing advanced abilities, futuristic weapons, and other sophisticated technology. The term has no relation to music, but is instead a play on the term soap opera, soap opera and horse opera, uh, the later of which was coined during the 1930s to indicate the cliched and formulaic Western movies. Space operas emerged um, in the 1930s and continued to be produced in literature, film, comics, television, and video games. So it sounds like you guys were hitting around the corner on all of those definitions. It also sounds like it's something the WB would put on TV. The, the WB has done a couple of really wild uh, science fiction soap operas, but they've all been earthbound, like uh, Kyle XY and Meet John Doe and stuff like that. The 100. The 100, 100 was great. Was the book mm-hmm. first. I could never get into the 100. Didn't they also do the 4400? Or was that a different network? No, that was USAA. Oh, okay. But I love US- Krypton. Wait, wait. USAA is, is the insurance company insurance. for veterans. Sorry, USA. Or the finance company for veterans. Oh, USA now. Okay. She was just chanting with the echo. <laughs> no, I'm just stupid. All right. Next question is yours, Saska. Um, are you, do you guys agree with this definition or are you sticking with your own answers? Yeah, I, I really being... like this definition personally. <laughs> what? I really like this definition personally. Um, I, I I think that it it really gets at that that the scope thing. But there's also and it, so like Star Wars is kind of the quintessential space opera in a lot of ways. That that's the one people point to, and it has sort of that uh, that melodramatic element to it. And, and looking at that the hero's journey arc and and the dash of romance and and the pew pewing stuff going on. So I, I think that that this kind of definition is a good good characterization. Um, I like it quite well, but I think it's a bit uh, disparaging, especially when you get into some of the more adult so uh, more adult space opera soap opera tropes. Yeah. Just don't apply to something like Stephen R. Donaldson's The Gap Cycle. Yeah, but is that really space opera? 
Oh, God, yes. I mean, the whole thing is literally based on Wagner's ring cycle. Hmm. Yeah, I think, um, no, I think, I think it's pretty close. I think, um, space opera is a lot, I don't think it's quite as rigid, um, as some genres in terms of like what it is. There's a lot of room to play with it. And I think the interesting thing that Wikipedia points out is that it was originally like a derogatory term, like, oh, that's just a, you know, like soap opera, space opera, horse opera, you know, a bunch of fat ladies singing and, you know, I don't know, but, um, but then it's kind of like, we just, I mean, the, we, we, we basically just kind of owned it and we're like, yeah, that's what we like. And so, and just trying to turn it into whatever we wanted it to be. So, yeah. Don't geeks do that normally? Pretty much. Yeah. Like geek is a okay. positive term now. And it used to be like, oh, you're such a geek, you know? I just look at people and go, your point is like saying I'm tall or I'm, my last <laughs> name is small. It's a fact. So, what about and you, Terry? Terry? Uh, I, I agree with the, the definition there too. My vision of what is space opera is very all encompassing. I'm willing to accept a lot of things as space opera. So you're not a purist. Oh, absolutely not. Okay. So are there any subtropes uh, that you must have in the story for it to be classified as space opera? Amy? I think that one of the elements that uh, I like to see in there is some kind of intrigue. It doesn't necessarily need to be at the highest political level, but there needs to be some kind of secret plot going on in there. Um, I also like to see some sort of um, teamwork element going on of kind of that that group coming together to take on something that's bigger than themselves and sort of the underdog taking on the the big thing whatever that may be so the quest vibe yeah yeah okay uh what about you dan um other than it being in space i think a space opera kind of needs to have a sort of this is going to sound a little geeky, but it's not a sort of multi-layer mirroring where the um, personal passions are driving the larger elements of the plot in a way that's a lot more tightly connected than you get, say, in adventure fiction or something. And I think that's, for me, that's the defining quality of space opera is that the, uh, is the personal passions projected onto the universe in a really big way. Hmm. Okay. Joe? That's a very interesting point. Um, I can definitely see that. I think also, I think space opera, humanity, if, if your characters are humans and in most space opera they are, or if they're aliens, um, they have to be a multi-planet species. Um, but I don't think that's sufficient because I think we're, we're, we're not quite there yet, but we're getting closer to that. Like I think of um, like Red Mars, Green Mars, Blue Mars. I'm not sure how, I mean, I've read, I've read, I've only read Red Mars. I'd say that's more like hard SF. But it's um, because the closer, the more we advance technologically, the closer we become to, you know, what was space opera before is now trending into more hard SF or near future SF. I think it's humanity's got to be a multi-planet species and it's got to be somewhere in the mid future or the far future. Okay. What about you, Terry? I think that there has to be a sense of adventure. Um, Obviously, it's it's not a requirement, but I think space opera is much better if it has that same feel like Star Wars is a grand adventure. If you've got an adventure element going on there where your character is on the grand journey, then you're definitely in the space opera territory. And if you're lacking it, maybe you're not writing really space opera. Maybe it's a different kind of science fiction. I'm not sure. 
Mind if I push back on you on that one? Absolutely. Um, Dune does not have an adventure in it, and it is one of the giants of space opera. I think Dune is the adventure. I, I think that yeah, may I mean, actually be correct. New hor- yeah, they're they're going to a completely new planet and they going out and trekking across the desert. I mean, I'd, I'd, I'd argue that that. Oh, has okay, some- well, yeah. I mean, they they do they do a lot of adventurous things, but it's not a um, it's not an adventure story. You know, the um, no, but this is, it, it's very tightly bound too. sociological stuff. Oh, structurally, okay. I agree. I misunderstood. We're just talking structurally. I'm not trying to make it. The question was subtropes, and this is if you gotcha. I think you need to have some adventurous elements in it yeah. for it to be space opera because if there's no adventure, I'm not sure that it actually is space opera. Yeah, gotcha. I mis- sitting in a board. My apologies, I misunderstood. Yeah. Well, I think most books these days have to have an adventure element or people we kind of like our books as action packed as we've taken to liking our movies, I think. Yeah. So, so Amy, you were you were talking in uh, Joe's big booming voice was talking over you, so we missed what you had to say. Oh, I, I was just saying that they're they they go to this whole other planet. They're going, they're trekking through the desert and meeting uh, like alien creatures. I mean, I, I would argue that that's a pretty adventurous thing. Okay. Dune, right, Dune, in my opinion, is like the most. I just read it for the third time, and Dune is, in my opinion, the most perfect science fiction book ever written. Um, my wife disagrees with that, but. Uh, I don't know. But you know, she gets points for re- having read it. Yeah, it's so. true. It's, sure. it's Lord but, of the I Rings. Mean, my, space my bar as a uh, as a spouse may be set low, but you know that, that that's that's my problem. So, but what about why did you give me romance, Jr? What about romance? Wiki mentioned that one as well as chivalric romance. And uh, anyway, so that you can. Like, what do you feel about it having a sub- romantic subplot? And I guess does it have to be clean romance? Since Jr. educated me on what clean romance is, we're cleaning that in the question. I don't think it's a absolute must, but I think it's a more often than not. There's some kind of romantic element to space opera, but I don't think that not having that would completely cut it out of of being in the genre. And I certainly like having some romance in mind, personally. I do, too. Well, I've joked before that I'm allergic yep. to it, so. <laughs> well, there and there's another, I, I tend to agree, but there's another sense, too. A chivalric romance is actually a particular medieval literary, medieval and late and early modern literary genre that um, doesn't, isn't just about the wooing of the romantic interest, but it's about the achieving of the status to be worthy of the interest of the romantic prospect. And that's an element that is in space opera, even in space operas that don't have a contemporary, um, a contemporary romantic sort of romance. Yeah, I think, um, well, there's romance and there's romance. Like there's romance. When we use the term, we're thinking usually like uh, um, love stories and that sort of thing. Right. Um, the old term, like it used to be that basically everything that was kind of a, like that was adventure or that was fiction kind of fell under this kind of before they had really clear genre delineations. Um, mm-hmm. Romance was kind of a lot. A lot of things fell under the the term of romance. Um, and I think there might be a little bit of a throwback to that because space opera was kind of Space opera, space opera is one of the older uh, subgenres of science fiction. And science fiction, I think it really began with Frankenstein, and you had the 19th century stuff, uh, Jules Verne, H.G. Wells, and um, oh, yeah. 
And that's kind of called scientific romances at the time. Exactly. Exactly. And I think that's, um, so a lot of the, at the time, like all these genres, which we've since delineated out, they've, a lot of them were still sharing tropes. And I think that's where space opera kind of got more of its kind of romantic uh, edge to it, where it's not just about, not just about like a, you know, a boy, a girl, or, or a girl and a girl, a boy, I don't know, but like two or an alien and a human, they fall in love with each other. It's, but it's also striving to be worthy or striving to attract that kind of a person. So, and also, and also larger than life was the element that all of those old romances had in common, whether they were uh, love stories or not. There, there was something larger than life about either the aspirations or the storytelling or the world or something. Mm -hmm. And you read it, people, they'd read these kind of stories because they want to feel an emotion like, uh, Mm, yes, we want, and that's a lot of it. So it's a lot of it tied up in the sense of wonder right there. So it's not just a sense of wonder at the grandeur of the universe, but it's also a sense of wonder at, wow, these are really amazing people and I love them. Mm, Yes, yes. Or these are really horrible people and I hate them. (laughs) Yeah. I agree with Joe uh, a lot in this. I think that besides the the capital romance, romantic issues that that, uh, are very important to space opera, I like a little bit of, of actual romance in the stories, but I don't think it's required. I don't think that it's necessarily something that has to be in something to make it a space opera. I I think what might be more important than having a a love story in there is having people come together at some point and be uh, Mm. kind of find, find some kinship. And that could potentially be a friendship rather than a love interest. But there's that idea of coming together to be, uh, to be stronger as, as one unit rather than just one individual. Mm, like a, very much, yeah. Okay. It's it's like a sense of brotherhood, but men and women. It's it's right. one of those things of of coming together. Universal you can, brotherhood. Yeah. You you can have a really crappy romance and still be a good space opera, like Dune. That's um, true. The romance in Dune <laughs> oh, is basically gosh. like it's like I saw the future and we're fated to be together. Yes, let's be together. But I got to marry someone else for political reasons. Exactly. Yeah. Horrible pickup line. Hey, let's hook up and have a child that becomes a worm god. <laughs> Pretty much. All right. I double dare you to try that in a bar. We'll wait. <laughs> oh, okay. You're on. I would pay to Next see you try that at Dragon Con. Which one? <laughs> wait, it doesn't count if he, if he uses it on Kenny. No, I would see you try it at Dragon Con. Well, if I ever make it to Dragon Con, I'll try it there. Apply to be a guest. That's the best way to make it. I have to be able to afford to go. I'm in the middle of building a house. That's a bit expensive. Yeah. Those Larry Korea. What's your point? Larry Korea is Larry Korea. So we. Larry Korea not generally. He 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 bought a mountain. Larry Korea did. I know. It's awesome. Yes. Nice. We all need a mass in- mountain castle, I agree. But so the definition uh, also mentioned the military aspects of things. So just how important is it uh, to stay on point with things like the military rankings, technology, tactics, etc., separate from think, the genre that is military science fiction? I think the technology aspect is more important than the military aspect because you might be working with a completely alien culture that ha- might have a military scheme or not have a military that's just completely unlike anything you would see on earth in in the traditional sense. So I like to have a clear separation between 
space opera and military sci-fi. There's a lot of overlap between them when you're talking about the space fleet and space marine stuff, but I think that they are distinct genres, and then there's that overlap in the Venn diagram. Um, so I, I don't think that having a military component is necessary in what's going on in the story, but I think that there is always some kind of military element that is happening somewhere in the universe, even if it's uh, just there are these enforcer people that are out there that uh, people might be needing to be on the lookout for, but I don't know that you really need to have a military officer on your cast of main characters to be considered space opera. Okay. Uh, Dan? Um, I think Amy's onto something. I think that uh, that you don't actually need the military per se involved, but you do. But something related to that general area of life, either military or diplomacy, or a war going on in the background, or something dealing with large scale political shifts, is important to having space opera really be space opera. Yeah, I think, and I think the reason for that is because it's not just like. Space opera is not just about, you know, the, the lives of these private people and they're going and doing their, their private things, although it can focus on that. But there's also an element of empires and kingdoms and large groups of people, you know, clashing and everything. And which is where I kind of think where the kind of opera part comes from. And, and the way that large groups of people mm-hmm. clash is usually through uh, armed conflict. So I think when we when we get out and we make first contact with another species, we're going to find out that we're actually the Klingons. So. <laughs> I'm okay That's with not a, that. Yes, yeah, yeah, the, Klingons, yeah. the Klingons were kind of the weak link uh, species in Star Trek. Like they were, oh, they're these, you know, bad mama dramas. And then every time, the, every, every time they invent, invade the Enterprise, who is it that's getting their that butt to Klingons by some pizza. like five foot two nothing female with no training who was yesterday like working in the bake shop and suddenly she's kicking the Klingons but like no those are not what I would consider an example of a good warrior race <laughs> that does not they're, happen they're like the Barney Fife of warrior race they did survive better than some of them though I mean um, but yeah but I, I think I'm I sense that JR has a little bias here <laughs> Well, Star Trek is also basically just, you know, what, what it, like a communist future looks like. So there you go. You know, it's a communist wet dream. That's Star Trek. But to be completely serious about the point, the, um, the, the, rea- <laughs> the reality is that any, any species that makes it out to become a multiplanetary or galactic species is going to be an apex predator. And so okay. the bumping of species into each other, even if they eventually make peace, is going to be rather like the bumping of empires into each other on Earth. It's going to be bloody and nasty and really, really dire. Well, and I think a lot of the uh, the military stuff also came from Star Trek because Star Trek was a mm. something that really popularized it. And, you know, Star Trek was isn't really – you can't really say it's military science fiction. It's not – it's kind of – there's a lot of you know issues with it there, but it's – but they had like the whole military structure and everything because the Federation is, you know, expanding and exploring all these. Well, I think places. it's gotten yeah, a lot more. I think Star Trek started kind of military with that and then got back towards it because you had the war with the Dominion. Yeah, I mean, the Star Trek military culture is very much the Bretton Woods World Order American military culture. You know, it's there to, to keep the seas open and keep brush fire wars down. It's not, I actually it's thought not that they were like Coast Guard in space. Well, that's essentially <laughs> what the U.S. Navy was for the last 80 years. 
police actions as opposed to actual yeah. wars. Yeah. But you actually had like the war with the Dominion, which was glorious. Yes, it was How glorious. How were they for that when it started? <laughs> I've heard. You know what? The defiant fucking rocks. Just shush. All, okay. all I'm going to say is that the Honorverse is what Star Trek wants to be when it grows up. Yes, it does. <laughs> with lots of missiles, obviously. There you go. And plenty and more meetings to, to make themselves Obviously, there, there, you cannot have fewer than 10,000 missiles in the honor and anything in the Honorverse for it to count as military. Roll pods. Just ask right. David. So what about uh, what about you, Terry? We we don't want to skip you. I maybe think, they do, but oh, sure you do. By the way, I just want to say that if if you ever get into space, you're more you're more like possums in space, Jr. Okay. <laughs> Go on. Which means you won't know that he's not. Which means you won't know he's not dead till you get right near him and he bites your face off. That's exactly how it's going to work. Di- and he's diving into your dumpster. He's okay. Not an a- he's not an apex predator. He's more like a trash panda. <laughs> All right. I'll take that. Keep going. He's like Rocket from Guardians of the Galaxy. All right. Except that he's not quite as coordinated as that. You, you have to meet him to know for sure, but trust me on this. I think that um, space opera doesn't have to have military in there, but I b- agree that it has to have the advanced technology. If you look at Star Wars, the Rebellion is definitely not a military force. They did some fighting, but they were whatever was scraped up from wherever they could find it. And that that absolutely works. I'm sorry. What'd you say, JR? They were terrorists that used child soldiers. There you go. Shut up. Let's throw him out of here. All I'm saying is that, you know, sometimes the emperor just got to put your boot down to get stuff done. You know why the emperor had to use clones? Because they couldn't figure out how to have any game. Oh, oh, okay. <laughs> but it, but he got stuff done. Well, if you read the uh, what's you know called? what, my Legends sister now, can get stuff done. That's not a, something to brag about. <laughs> <laughs> but that, that's uh, that's before the mouse ruined it. And, uh, oh, God. Anyway, don't get me started. So, so you think the the military technology has to be there, but the main characters <laughs> in your story don't necessarily have to be military. I don't even know that it is to be military technology the technology to wage war in a futuristic fashion is a big part of it whether you're talking just using lightsabers to fight somebody on a one-to-one nature or you've got a star destroyer trying to bombard a planet you've got to have whatever it takes to take the futuristic fight to whatever your enemy is that's what it needs so i'm skipping 11 because (laughs) we already answered 11 Oh, we did. You're right. Yes. Uh, what level of details do you need for it to be space opera? Do you have to have technical specs for ships? Uh, do you need to cover travel times? Can you just wave your hands and have FTL import teleportation? So I, I, I think that space opera varies widely uh, in in this regard. For my own personal taste, I the main thing I want is internal consistency in the universe. I don't necessarily need to know all of the aspects of how things work, but I just want there to be consistency in how things do work. So if you have either the transit time is always variable or 
it's going to take a certain amount of time to get to, to different locations. And I don't need to have that spelled out for me all the time, but I just want to know that the author at least is tracking it in their head and be able to, to get that as a reader. Um, in terms of the technical specs on spaceships, I just want it to know enough that as a reader, I'm, I can create that environment in my head. I don't need to know the exact speed that everything can go and, and all of its uh, equipment loadout. I think that goes more into the military sci-fi and the, the hard sci-fi stuff. I think space opera can be a lot looser with those things, but you just need to set enough groundwork that the reader knows what is possible and what is not possible. So when you go to break a rule for some reason, because they get this cool new tech that allows you to break a rule, you just need to have established that that is, in fact, something that they're breaking and isn't just a given in the universe. For a perfect example of how not to do this, look at what J.J. Uh, Abrams did with the transporters in Star Trek Into Darkness. Oh, my heck. Yeah. <laughs> no. I really don't like Abrams' Star Trek. I mean, Me yeah, it's beautiful, and Kirk Hines is great to watch, but I really don't like it. <laughs> Let's just leave the uh, Academy and command a starship. Here we go. Yeah, really. Uh, you I know think what? The most... We just need to go back to the Emissary. The days of the Emissary were much better. Yes, yes, yes. I think the most important element for the construction of any galactic empire is hand wavium. Um, I personally... I personally like to like to do hard SF um, space opera because for me it's more interesting to write. But um, I mean, space operas are all over the place, and as long as there's internal consistency to the universe, the reader will accept anything. And the point of the space opera is not the the technical details; it's the it's the immense edifying scope of what's going on. It's that sense of bigness that you get going through these characters that are engaging in grand events and living out their deepest passions and facing their greatest fears and affecting the course of the universe in the process. The technical details are strictly incidental. Yeah, no, I agree with both of that. Um, I agree with Amy and Dan. I think there's... Um a lot of hand wavium. And the thing is you can, there are t like, you can write a space opera that doesn't have a whole lot of technical stuff or that doesn't, that kind of just hand waves all over the place. The question is, do you want to write a good space opera? Like, um, mm. and the thing is, there's well, like, why would you want to write a bad one? It's a good question. I don't know. I mean, there's a market for them. I mean, have you seen the shit that makes it on the streaming services? Dude, there's a market for anything. Dinosaur pornography is a thing in books. There's a market exactly. for anything. Why would you want to write a bad one? <laughs> I don't know, but there's a few tricks. One of the things and I, <laughs> about writing bad ones, yes, there you go. Or at least hiding hiding how bad it actually is. There's there's a few tricks, but um, but no, there, 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 I think um, one of the things is you're writing stuff that is so out there. It's like future it's it's like in the space there's all kinds of stuff there's aliens i mean so what you want to do that i think a lot of the technical stuff can really help to ground it especially what you do is a lot of space opera starts with a big lie like the big lie is we have faster than light travel but then like because you have one big lie you can't have two big lies you have to have one big lie right. and then everything else has to kind of follow from that which is why you get down to a lot of well if this is how we have faster than light but this is how it works. And we're going to detail it down to the very technical level so that um, 
we basically we can have it function that way. So I don't know. There you go. I just had a brain fart. So anyways. <laughs> that makes sense. We'll we'll go with that. Okay. Now you and then the other thing is also, and I remember now, the other thing is that you want um a lot of space opera, um, and a lot of science fiction in general, you will explain will explain one small thing in great detail, and then kind of that allows that gives you space to basically hand wave a really huge thing. Um, this is more from the writing end of things than it is from the reading end of things, but you'll find that if the author makes you like describe something in such detail that you believe that it exists, that builds trust. So then when the author basically glosses over and then they went and the spaceship did this thing, then you're like, Oh, that's believable because it feels believable because this other thing was described in such detail. Okay. Carrie. For me, I I am not a very technical specs kind of person. As long as I give my ship's class name so that they have a relative size, the relative one's faster than the other, one's better armed than the other, that's good enough for what I do. As far as travel times, uh, I keep them very general. So my story has to be loose enough to accommodate the travel times, which to get from one part of a solar system to a different solar system might take days. I have to go ahead and have my story structured in a way that that's not going to be a problem. If it was, then I'd have to write my stories in a different way. I'd have to structure it differently. It occurred to me when it comes to the hand wavium, Star Trek two had a wonderful line that sort of distills down what I think is essential in space opera. Um, Kirk says, you have to understand why things work on a starship. And if you can convey to your audience why things work in the story the way they do in a in a good enough sense, then you've got a tremendous amount of flexibility on how much technical detail you give here or there, as long as they get the gestalt and get it very clearly. Okay. Um, so now that we've got the broad strokes of what makes good uh, or what what is space opera, let's talk about what makes good, bad, or great space opera, which you guys started hinting at but didn't answer, so we get to ask. Uh, and we'll start with Amy. What do you think makes um, space opera it truly rise above? I think it's when you're able to bring all of the elements together in a way that feels completely seamless. So a lot of things will emphasize one one of the the elements either it's it's pretty militaristic or it has this really great hero's journey or there's this really nice uh character development arc with coming together as a team or a romance but if you can get all of those things working together completely seamlessly those are the ones that really stand out and the really bad ones just don't really do any of those things well. It's just it's throwing too many things together, but they're not integrated in a way that feels natural. So it's got all the ingredients, but none of the soul. Right. Okay. All right. What about you, Dan? I think that uh, the best space opera happens when the story itself has immense mythic depth. And everything else in the story serves to reinforce that um, works together like a symphony. It doesn't matter how many elements you've got, as long as they are all plucking on the same mythic leitmotifs and reinforcing each other so they feel like an integrated whole. That was a much more eloquent way of saying what I was trying to say. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I, I agree. And that's very short. But anyways, no, I would I would add uh, I agreed with all that. And I would add that, um, you know, a lot of other genres of fiction, uh, 
they will have larger than life character. Like the characters will be so large that they're a little bit unbelievable because the setting, they take place in a believable setting, like in a lot of uh, thriller or a lot of um, like romance and stuff. You'll have like, it'll take place on in this, in this world, in a, a, a real place. And so the character will be like some kind of a crazy, you know, ex Navy seal who does all these crazy things, or it'll be like this, this hunky guy or this really hot babe or something like that. And so the people will be more, will will be a little bit more loose, like a little more unbelievable. Mm -hmm. But I think because space opera takes place in worlds that are so far removed from our known reality, you really, the really great space opera grounds it by having characters that feel like real people that you can really fall in love with and really, really feel really close to. And I think that's um, that's where it overlaps a lot with epic fantasy because it's the same thing. You have this – it's a genre that really focuses on the sense of wonder. You have these crazy fantastic worlds, this magic and everything, but you have to have characters that – like it, none of that will feel believable if the characters are also you know crazy you know and off the wall. They have to actually feel like, no, this is a real person that I could, I could sit down with and chat with and be a really close friend with or a really big enemy with. I don't know. But, yeah. Okay. Carrie? I think that what makes for really great space opera is having heart in the story. You've got to really make the readers care about what happens to those characters. You've got to have great characters, even if they're just regular everyday people that are, that are having to struggle against almost unconquerable odds. You've got to have that heart in there so that the readers are rooting for you that are right behind you. That's what you need. And if you don't have that, you're going to fall a little short. Okay. Next question I, is yours, Seth. Before, oh, before you do that, I I'd like disagree to propose, with me. Oh, no. no, 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 no. It's just that as everyone else was talking, it occurred to me that there's one other quality of great space opera that that I always look for. Um, it shows up in Deep Space Nine and Dune and Babylon Five. Oh. It's they're the kinds of stories that when they close they stay with you because they have shown you something about life or the mysteries of the universe or yourself that sticks with you for years. It They open up a sphere of consciousness that you can't get to any other way. That'd be Ender's Game. Yep. Yeah. Ender's Game would be yeah. that kind of story too. But I would think with, particularly with the three of them that you mentioned for me, when I, when they closed, it was a sense of, completion like that yes. was just perfect yes. that's really hard to get very hard to get but we actually so are we all done because i are one of our listeners submitted a really great question and i'd love to ask you guys it okay sure how much of the galactic government has to be included to fit the genre in other words could the entire story be about a cook at a fast food joint without involving any government agencies, cops, officers, and still be space opera. Yes. Yes. Nathan Lowell writes these. Oh, yeah. You have to have the space travel aspect of it, though. So you think it can't just take place only in the kitchen, but it could certainly be a, a, person who works as a cook in a kitchen on a spaceship i think the important aspect of the the galactic government needs to just be that backdrop to to set the tone for what's going on in the broader universe and have some kind of personal relationship between that main character and how they feel about what's going on okay good answer who's that guy from uh what was it in voyager uh 
the guy who's like the the morale like the morale officer, the guy who's basically the cook. Neelix. Neelix, Neelix. yes. Neelix. There you go. You you could write a story entirely from Neelix's point of view, and that would be exactly that, and it would be very much space opera. I think they and did a Nathan couple Wolf's episodes. Golden and it was Age good. of the Solar Clipper, which is one of the most beautiful space operas ever written, is all about just an ordinary workman struggling his way through the merchant marines. Or then uh, one that I really like, it's a little older, is uh, Merchanter's Luck by uh, C.J. Cherry, which is basically, and that's kind of more. It's more like. Uh, it's space opera and it also kind of overlaps with the science fiction romance, but it's basically like hmm. there's this whole, you know, universe and everything, this whole universe, the down below universe and everything else, the Alliance um, union universe. She basically just wrote a story. That's basically a love story about a guy who gets on the spaceship of this, you know, this uh, merchant and how it works out. So, yeah. Hmm. Okay. What about you, Terry? I think that you only have to have as much of the galactic government as you need to set the tone of the story that you're trying to tell. It doesn't have to be a political thriller to be space opera. In fact, I think that if it was a political thriller, that might detract from the experience. So whatever it takes to to set the tone and to set up the conflict, that's how much you need. Okay. So now let's look at the genre writ large. So are we? do you guys think we are in a boom period for space opera or a bubble about to pop? And uh, Amy, you can go first. I think the space opera genre is only going to continue to grow now that humans are actually legitimately looking to begin more space travel. I, I, I can only see that level of imagination continuing to, to expand. Okay. What about you, Darren? I agree that it's only going to get better, but I've got a different reason. We're moving into a world for the next generation or two that is far more multipolar and multilateral. And so the kinds of Game of Thrones shit that used to be normal throughout history are getting to be normal again. And people will gravitate towards space opera because it's a way to explore and understand how these things work without having to read the news. Okay. Way to explore geopolitics. There you go. So I'd say he likes social political stuff. So he did. What about you, Joe? So I have this theory that um, science fiction, at least literary science fiction, is just now coming out of a dark age. I think that. uh, Amen. I think that when you look at like it went through basically the eighties through most of the aughts. um, This was kind of a, a dark age period. You look at histories of science fiction at least as far as the literary science, like just, just books. And it starts with the kind of the scientific romance era of the 19th century. And then that gives way to the pulps of the twenties and thirties. You have this explosion of these, uh, these uh, new magazines and everything. And this is where you get like a lot of like Western became a thing and action adventure. And if this is where you get the kind of the, what is it? You get the, um, like the damsel in distress being, you know, being kidnapped by a bug-eyed alien, you know, all those kind of covers and stuff. That's the pulp era. And then John Campbell, uh, during his time in the fifties and the forties and fifties, that's when you really get the golden age. And that's when you have, you have uh, Asimov, Heinlein and Clark. And then in the sixties and seventies, there was kind of a pushback against that. And it, it went from being hard science fiction to being more, um, like social science fiction. And this is when you get the new wave and you get like, uh, Le Guin and you get also Frank Herbert with Dune and a lot of the other stuff there. And I think after that science, literary science fiction actually went into a dark age. And I think that happened because um, partially because a lot of the other media were really taking off. Like you have film and movie, you've got, you know, of course, like 
Star Trek, the next generation, you have Star Wars is really taking off and Terminator and a lot of these other franchises and people were turning away from books. You also have some really big changes happening in the uh, book industry at the time. You have the rise of the big box stores like Borders and Barnes and Nobles. You have a distributor collapse, which then led to a, because if, if, you know, most of the books are being sold by Borders and Barnes and Nobles are pushing all the indie booksellers out. They only want to have, you know, one distributor that nationally that they deal with instead of, instead of like all these local ones. And so that pushed out a lot of the local distributors, which then meant that the publishers started consolidating. And so you had this kind of really weird era in publishing as far as books are concerned and where a lot of it was really more focused around New York. You had a lot more um, like the editors and agents. If, if a New York editor or a New York agent could didn't understand your book, they wouldn't, it wouldn't get published. I think a big exception to that was Bain because Bain is in North Carolina. And so they, they Bain's awesome and exactly. actually cares about the genre. Yes, yes. Yes, they do. And I think what we're seeing right now, I think we've entered, we've exited that dark age because of the revolutions that are happening in publishing with indie publishing. And I think we are entering into a new, an era of um, kind of a new pulp era, which is what's happening with the, with the indies where basically, you know, it's really easy to publish. A lot of people are coming out there and a lot of really great stuff is coming out. There's also a lot of crap that's coming out, but there's a really big turn of a lot of, a lot of creative stuff that's coming out there. I think that space opera in the next couple of decades um, and science fiction in general, like literary science fiction is going to go through, there's going to be a lot of creative destruction in the next decade or two. Mm-hmm. I think we're going to see a lot of new names that are coming out. Um, a lot of old institutions, like a lot of old awards are going to become more and more relevant. A lot of more older organizations. Some of them will survive. Well, there's some new awards coming out too. Like there's been the dragon award and another thing. Exactly. So we're, we're seeing new, new ones come out. Awesome. There's the Goodreads awards are becoming bigger. Um, USA today is taking over from the New York times bestseller list. Um, so we're they actually post a real list. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So, the, and there's metrics that they use to create it. Yes. Yeah. And I think all Those of this in your data science. Yeah. And I think all of this is going to lead, as far as what it means for space opera, I think there's going to be a really, um, I think things are good. I think I think now has been the best time ever to be a writer or a reader. Uh, there's a lot of new stuff coming out and a lot of new opportunities that weren't there before. Um, I think these are going to be good for space opera. I think there is going to be a lot of chaos and a lot of creative destruction, but I think overall things are going to be very good. Well, and like John Scalzi in an interview called it the golden era of publishing. There's yes. so much and yeah. it's so plentiful and you can get it. It your books in so many different formats. <laughs> but even in the Sorry, indie no, world, there's a lot of chaos too, because there's uh so you've got Kindle unlimited with their terms for exclusivity. And then you've got all kinds of other crazy stuff happening. So the question, there's a lot of things happening in the background that maybe readers won't really pay as much attention because they just want good books. But yeah, um, no, I, I worked at Barnes and Noble for a while and Kindle unlimited became the bane of my existence because it was people would come in and go, well, why can't I buy this book? It's like, oh, it's, just, it's, it's Kindle Unlimited, right? Yeah, yeah, that means that, you know, they made life suck. Blame, blame Amazon. And that's Amazon's way of basically trying to corral all these, you know, indie authors into one space and have them just be exclusive to Amazon so then they can control the content. That There's part of that. There's partially there. Now, I mean, I don't begrudge anybody because the thing is, the nice thing being an author is you can write multiple books. So you can have some books in Kindle Limited and some not. I mean, you can, you can, there's all kinds of strategies you can, you can follow. But oh no, I'm all for people getting good books out there and getting started and getting to know authors. Yeah. But point Spent is, I, half my life doing that, it seems. Yeah. But point is, I think there's going to be a lot of, there's a lot of chaos is coming, but I think overall it's going to be really good. 
Okay. And uh, Terry, you get to top that. Well, actually, I think I'm going to continue on with what he's saying there. Um, (laughs) This is kind of inside baseball for people that aren't authors. But with Kindle Unlimited, there's a large audience of science fiction and space opera readers that are in Kindle Unlimited because they are just whale readers. They want to read everything they can get their hands on. And as somebody that participates in that, two-thirds of my income comes from Kindle Unlimited, which I never saw coming. And so it's it, it doesn't do to, to dismiss it. I wish I could be wide, but I, I think I actually get more readers coming through Kindle Unlimited than I do otherwise. Yeah, I'm just I had a reader tell me that they liked the Kindle Unlimited because there is such great disparity between really good and really not so great as well as so. And that gave them the chance to, to try so much that they could really figure out what they liked and what they didn't like and who was to their taste. Cause sometimes somebody may be great and other people may not like them just because it's a different kind of story. So, I mean, I think it's great. Um, more reading, oh. better. Amy, Amy, you started to say something, but I don't think um, Tesca heard you when she started talking. Sorry. No, it's okay. Yeah, I, just, I, I'm, I'm in the same situation as, as Terry, that um, most of my, my income and readership is through Kindle Unlimited. Okay. All right, next question is yours, Tesca. Okay, so we've talked about – one second – Number 16. Number 16. Sorry, we switched from odds to evens and we flip-flopped. How is Space Opera today different from the 80s and 90s? And are those exciting or disappointed? Like, good and the bad of this? I think probably the biggest change is the amount of diversity in uh, both the the racial and, and gender representations in a lot of the the new space opera uh, i think it's it's significantly more diverse now than it was during the 80s and 90s and i i think that's representative of the the way that the world culture is now so i, I think that's a, a good evolution yeah. um well the main difference i see is that there's a lot more quality stuff in print in the 80s and 90s I mean, I'm going to piss a lot of people off, but your two best um, space opera series that started and ended in that era were The Gap Cycle by Donaldson and Bio of a Space Tyrant by Piers Anthony. And a lot of the rest of what was done in the genre was actually done as um, as uh, shared world um, and licensed science fiction. And it wasn't bad stuff, but nowadays there's in addition to there being a much greater diversity in characters there's a much greater diversity in authors and in really high quality authors doing this genre and so there's a much richer field to pluck from as a reader okay joe yeah that's those are all very good points i think um another thing is although i would say that i think ender's game the ender's game is yeah the corset is up there. That's think true. That, that was good. Yeah, I think that's up there. That was true. But um, I think that uh, as technology has changed, I mean, in the 80s and 90s, we had like the Voyager probes and we had the Pioneer probes and we had the Viking and stuff like that. But we've got – we landed Curiosity on the moon. I mean – not on the moon, on Mars. Like we've got mm-hmm. all kinds of stuff. The things – like we have detailed images of uh, the surface of Titan, which we didn't have like 
back when I, when I was growing up, like in the nineties, it was like Titan is this mysterious world. We can't penetrate the clouds because we can't see what's there. And now we know it's this really crazy, interesting world. I think um, what's, I think what really sets things apart today is that we just know so much more about space and about what's out there. And uh, there's also so many things we don't know. Um, like uh, things like dark matter, dark energy, you know, this kind of thing. But I think that's really uh, impacting things. Now that you mentioned that, another thing that's true now that wasn't is there's now an actual working theoretical warp drive. Whether it could actually be made to work in real life, probably not. Yeah, the Alcubier drive. The Alcubier drive, yeah. Yeah. Something – so I seem to remember reading somewhere that they said that for that drive to work, they would have to use more power than the sun will have made in its lifetime. <laughs> yeah, you kind of need the the mass energy of Jupiter to get yourself into a warp, at least at this point. I think they said that then you needed exotic matter at the size of Jupiter to make this work. Oh, I hadn't heard the exotic matter wrinkle. It's been a while since I've read that article. Uh, the solar system is getting I, a little I think I want to go ahead and expand on something that Joe said. It, I think that one of the things that's growing isn't just we know more in science. We know more in science fiction. Every science fiction story that you read decade by decade is building on what people have read in the past. So when they started writing space opera back in the, the 20s, in the pulp era, it was pretty fast and loose. The characterization wasn't that grand. The, the science was pretty wild. It was, it's what can we imagine? And as decade by decade, we, we build on what science fiction we've read, it makes us have to step up our game. We have to write better stories. We have to write better characters. We have to write more diverse audiences. We've got to make our stories better than what came before us. At least that's what we should be trying to do. And I think that in a lot of cases, that's what's happening. I think in the good stories, that's what's happening. Yeah. Well, that's true. So that's a good point. we talked about how it's evolving and, you know, we, we covered in the question, the eighties and nineties, because these last few ones are from, from listeners. Uh, so I'm going to tweak the next one. Since we've talked about how things have changed in the past, how do you think science fiction is going to continue to change as we go forward? And we'll start with you, Amy. I think there's going to continue to be a move toward uh, more hard sci-fi in space opera as we continue to learn more about the actual scientific theoretical possibilities out there. And I also think that the sociological aspects and the the modern themes and in, in culture of uh, having more more diverse representation is is going to continue to grow. Okay, uh, Dan. I think she's right on all of that. And I think the sociological aspects are actually going to get a lot wilder than we've seen. Maybe, maybe, uh, I mean, sociological stuff in science fiction has not been very wild or, uh, interesting. If I, I hate to say that, but since, uh, since the culture turned conservative in the eighties. And, uh, so I think, we're going to see a return to some of the wild sociological stuff that was flitting around in the new wave era. And that married to the trend toward hard sci-fi and into space opera, like Amy was saying. So what are you defining as wild sociological uh, stuff as far as talking about playing with cultural um, norms, cultural norms, all sorts of stuff. So uh, if I can be all geopolitical wonky for a sec, the, 
the cultural transformation in the eighties was wasn't a political one. It was a result. Well, a politi- it had a political element, but it was largely a result of a very very large generation becoming uh, coming of age and becoming wealthy enough that culture across the United States and to a lesser extent across the Western developed world homogenized. And so that which used to be taboo but contemplatable became unthinkable in a lot of areas, not just sexual, but uh, family structure and economic structure and all sorts of things, because the world had a sameness across all of the easily visible parts. And so as a result, the speculative elements in the sociological end of science fiction started to really drain away because the writers had a lot less exposure to the vast diversity of human experience. And I think that as the world has come unglued and become less stable, the curiosity about how adaptable humans really are is going to ramp up and we're going to see a lot more wild speculation on the sociological side. Okay. Um, Joe, you want to follow that? Yeah, no, that's very interesting because what we're living through right now geopolitically um, is basically the the death or at least decline of the uh, neoliberal world order that kind of dominated after the Cold War. We had uh, you had the one the Soviet Union, the communists lost the Cold War, and we saw the rise of um, basically this kind of neoliberal order of uh, liberal democracies, and now is basically a period of cooperation. So yeah, I can see how, because right now a lot of like nationalism is on the rise. Globalism is on the decline, um, which is leading to a lot more of the uh, chaos geopolitically. And I think that is going to influence, uh, influence space opera in some interesting ways. I think that going back to what Amy was saying about diversity, I think um, indie publishing is a really big boon for, um, for diverse authors or authors who might have found it more difficult to get into, uh, to get the, you know, their foot in the door um, mm-hmm. if there's a way more opportunity, basically, if you can tell a story and people want to hear it, um, it doesn't matter what your background is or, or what your race, gender, sexual, sexuality, ideology, whether you're an actual alien or a time traveler, you can get your story published. So, and you can, if you can find it, an audience that way, you can, you can really get big. So, uh, I think that's going to lead to a big boon too, for, uh, like indie publishing is really, really friendly towards that. Okay. And Terry? I'm going to need you to repeat the question because we went geopolitics and now my brain is thinking geopolitics. And I know that wasn't necessarily quite the question. <laughs> oh, we we talked about um, how the field of science, uh, space opera has evolved over the past 50 years. So how do you think it will continue to change in the next, you know, X number of years? I think that what's going to happen going forward is that all of the voices that are trying to be told are going to be benefiting from the fact that the algorithms on these stores will find authors that don't necessarily have as great a reach as they think they do. If you like story X, those algorithms are going to be good at saying, then you're probably going to like story Y and the way this person is talking about it. And so I, I it's more of a publishing sort of thing than a writing thing. But I think that whatever type of story you want to tell, you're going to be better able to find your audience. Okay. All right. Which doesn't mean it's so, going to be uh, easy because indie publishing oh no. can be really hard, but it's possible. All right. We can go with that. Next question is yours, Seska. Is it 17 or 18? We're on 18 because we switched. You skipped 11, remember? Shush. JR can't count. 
okay. I, I, I had a, other things pop up in my head. I got distracted. Um, <laughs> given how much of the market is covered by science fiction, why are so many, are there so few space opera movies out there? Which is funny because I can uh, totally that's 19. agree. That's 19. No, it's 18 on mine. It's 18 on ours too. Okay, oh, I don't know why the numbers are different. Yeah. All right, so then I will ask this anyway, question too so we can get on track. What? All of us are reading and writing stories. You hold on now, buddy. Pull back. But I wanted to talk about one of my favorite beef-rated movies. So I added a question uh, from the the audience before, after I sent you guys your copy, but she should have, her should have updated and dropped. So we've been having that problem with Dropbox, with it not syncing. I might have to bite the bullet and learn Google. Ugh. Well, don't do Microsoft share space, whatever they call it. It's not much Just, just set so, up an FTP directory on your web server, man. It's easy. Just I have no idea what any of that means. <laughs> I got, I, we're, we're there. So all of us are reading and writing stories in the English language, but not all of the market ha- happens in English. So what's going on in space opera written in other languages that might be influencing English language space opera coming out uh, in the bookstore near you? Amy? Uh, I must admit to not being very up to date on what's going on in the non-English speaking market right now. Um, I I know certainly there's a, a lot happening in Asia, especially in China with the, the sci-fi scene, but uh, I, I am not particularly educated on it myself, I'm afraid to say. Okay, Dan? Um, as far as how what's going on in other languages is going to influence the uh, English-speaking market, that influence will come entirely through either translators or people who read the language in question. So, unfortunately, it probably won't come through me because I'm shit at Mandarin and Japanese. All right, go. Yeah, I can read Arabic, but there's not a whole lot of Arabic science fiction. Although there is some, apparently. But, um, and then... Yeah, not a whole heck of a lot, but there's, I don't know. I think it's, I'm not as familiar, like kind of like Amy and Dan, Dan, I'm not that familiar with a lot of the non-English language stuff. I mean, I somewhat speak Arabic, but I'm kind of a hack at it. But um, I think there's um, speak more than I do. So yeah, I mean, shway, shway, yani. but uh, I know enough to get myself in trouble, get along on the playground and order food. Alhamdulillah. That's the important stuff. No, I don't know. Right. No, I, don't, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. Like, um, no, but like from what I've heard and from what I've gathered, yeah, China's a real booming field. Um, there's a lot of stuff there. Uh, I know back in the day there was a lot of stuff in the old Soviet Union. And I remember I actually uh, – I lived in – I was teaching English in Georgia for a while in 2012. And I remember seeing some of the old – like you'd see a lot of old Soviet art everywhere. And uh, there's a lot of like space themes and stuff like that. Um how, as far as how it's going to influence the, the English-speaking world, I, I can't really say, uh, not being a huge expert. Um, but I think that the, I think that long, the long-term effects of the internet on, world, on our culture um, and on our world have not yet fully been explored. And I think as the internet brings cultures, like, as, the, as the internet creates more contact points for cultures to contact each other, I think that's going to uh, create more opportunities for influence there. Mm-hmm. Okay, Terry. I actually have an opinion on this one. Um, I know, right? I'm going to go ahead and go into the Wayback Machine here and introduce you folks to one of the space opera series that I found when I was growing up. I'm in my middle 50s, and I read what was in the used bookstore when, when I was growing up. 
And one of those series was a translation from German for a series called Perry Rodan. It's a serial novella type format that they've been publishing since 1961 that is still going on today. Every week, a new novella comes out set in this space opera universe. And it's something that almost no one outside of Germany knows about because it's German language. I don't know that it's going to influence the United States or the the English market. Uh, Ace published like the first 116 of them in English. And I read every single one of them when I was, when I was a young man. I, I wish that they kept doing it. I wish that I spoke German. Maybe that, maybe that's something I need to do there, but space opera is alive and well outside of English. I think what uh, the, the, res- the result is, is because there's, there's always been people that spoke multiple languages. I think what you're going to see is the ideas from cultures different than our own are going to start crossing over in ways. You'll see that largely from China because they're well, largely- If you read Mona Lisa Foster, she has a space opera one and um, she's European descent. Um, and she, it really, her culture comes across it. Her native culture, because she's American now, and she'll she'll knife you if you say otherwise. So she's wonderful, but uh, it definitely comes across in the in the perspective of how she approaches things. So, but yeah, you're going to see the um, cross cultural influences increase if we can stay out of our own way with this. Um, uh, what do they call that? When uh, oh, you um, anyway, the sociology types have a word for it. If you're using someone else's culture and you're not exactly whatever you're writing appropriation there we go if we can get out of our own way with that you're going to start to see some interesting ideas of what society could look like because we're incorporating worldviews other than our own i think that's the the gist of what i yeah that's not a sociological term that's a political term the sociological term is culture (laughs) all right fair enough no i just have to say my ancestors were viking and so cultural appropriation was their culture (laughs) (laughs) I think my family was what half Scottish, half German. So we gave the world beer and whiskey. So you're welcome. Hey, cool. <laughs> there you go. Yeah, with regards to the internet, remember the most important effect that the printing press had 400 years of cultural collision and warfare. <laughs> we're in well, for I some think interesting we're right time. On track. That's right. So. That was a, uh, um, and what do you call it, uh, adage or whatever. We were studying in world history in high school, and that was, may you live in interesting times. And we asked the <laughs> teacher to tell us what that meant. And I just remember him sitting there looking all sage, like, when you understand, you'll hate me. And now I understand, and I hate that son of a biscuit eater. I hated that phrase when I learned it the first time. Right. So, all right, let's move on to a happier question. Uh, Saska, 19 uh, on my book, 18 on yours. On, not just mine, everybody else's JR. Get with the program. <laughs> <laughs> He's going to smack on. me. He's not going to let me come back for season three. Uh, <laughs> okay. much, we are in season three, but, you know, carry on. Given how much market uh, is covered in science fiction, why are there so space, so few space opera movies out there? And can you name one? <laughs> Uh, I, I, naming one, I'll take the easy one to go with Star Wars. Uh, I think the reason that there are so few is just they're really expensive to make, or at least to to do well. Uh, those those special effects don't come cheap, and uh, the the big scope and everything typically requires a lot of different sets, and I, that, that's a lot of production design. Fair enough. Yep. 
Dan? Yeah, I, I agree. It's the expense, and uh, a few good ones are the first pre Disney, the pre Disney Star Wars films. <laughs> um, <laughs> Ve- uh, Denny Villeneuve's Dune looks like it's going to turn out to be really good, but um, yeah, you don't get you get a lot more space opera on television than in the fil- than in the movies because they're so expensive, and if studios are going to blow that kind of money, they want something that won't have a script, and so it'll be really easy to sell, like you know the Marvel films. Okay. Joe? I don't know. It's, it's kind of news to me. That there's kind of a lack of space opera in, in film. I mean, I know there's, I mean, maybe it's not as big as like Marvel or, or stuff like that, but Star Wars is huge right now. And also you've got Guardians of the Galaxy, which is Marvel. Yeah. But I mean, there's, um, I don't know. Now film is not my huge, it's not really my specialty. I don't, I mean, I'm always behind the trend on films, on movies and stuff. Um, I think I've heard there's, there tends to be more of a lot of, uh, basically just take a franchise and milk it until it, you know, with sequels and stuff. <laughs> oh yeah. Uh, the way film works. I know that Disney before they bought star Wars, they tried to do uh, like um, take the old Edgar Rice Burrow books, the princess of Mars books and turn those into a franchise. And it that was actually pretty good. Yeah. But yeah, the, the it was movie, a shame. It was yeah, pretty good. Apparently it bombed really bad. And um, yeah, so it's um, like, they were ready to invest a whole lot of money from that from what I heard, but like, it just did support. They're like, okay, we're going to, we're going to do something else. And they bought star Wars. Yeah. And because Bob Iger thought it would be a good idea to release it as John Carter. <clears throat> no mention of Mars, no mention of anything science fictional, just John Carter everywhere for a series that's 110 years old. And you know, <laughs> the other thing about that was that, um, princess of Mars is one of the older books that kind of invented a lot of the tropes that are space opera. So, one thing I heard, and I'll admit I haven't actually seen the movie. Um, I'd like to, but I'm always behind the trend on movies. It's a, it's a good movie, yeah. Yeah. But the um, the thing with that one was a lot of people complained like, oh, it feels so cliche. And the people who read the books were like, but, but he invented the cliche. Like, this is what's right. I'll throw out another one for you. Jupiter Ascending. Yes! Didn't see that yes. one. That's How one of my favorite movies. I did. I liked it. it. It, it was wasn't cheesy, but I liked it. It's so much fun. I'm trying to get us to do. JR was like, "Let's do one where we talk about a movie." I'm like, and I keep rooting for that one. <laughs> so much fun. Okay, but um, see, it's a think? good movie, JR. Okay, yeah, it's a, it's a great. Would... It's one that should have been a trilogy rather than trying to do one movie. Yeah, I could see that. I really wanted it to be a book. I really was hoping it was based off of a book. So, Terry, what do you think is keeping more of it from coming to the screen? Money and the fact that you just don't know what the public is going to like. When you go ahead and spend $300 million to make one of these things and it bombs, that really hurts the bottom line. So they're they're nervous about trying anything that they're not sure or that they're not thinking that they're sure will make a profit. Are, are you either uh, – is anybody uh, familiar with the YouTube channel Dust? Yes. Nope. There, uh, it's a YouTube channel that all, does all independent short films uh, in the space opera field, hmm. and, and there's proof that the audience is is there and hungry for all kinds of weirdness. Because some of their stuff is, it's like uh, very Hitchcockian in in some of the mind uh, games that it plays, and they do it on the cheap. So if if you're willing to put the work in, it's there. I just it's not necessarily a sure thing, but I don't know that as our culture has diverged, anything's a sure thing anymore when it comes to entertainment. I think the days of uh, everybody seeing the only one blockbuster 
are done. I think so. so Thank goodness. Yeah, we're in, mm-hmm. we're in the process of doing a, a TV pilot script adaptation of my Catacle series. So that'll be getting shopped around soon. So nice. hopefully there'll be some new content going on soon. Uh, it, it has a lot of the, the stuff that's hot right now. So we'll, we'll see what happens to it. But um, fingers crossed that, that. that turns into a nice. thing. Thank you. I, so, that, uh, that, that reminds me, uh, I did a terrible injustice. I forgot to include Dan Simmons' Hyperion series as Great Space Opera or Lois McMaster Bejeweled series. Both of those are come, come out of the 90s and are fantastic. The Miles Vorkskin stuff is amazing. Yes. Oh the, um, I the, read uh, Ethan of Athos recently. It was hilarious. The uh, streaming services, I think, are going to be some game changers uh, if you don't end up with uh, consumer fatigue from now everything is a streaming service. Every time you turn around, somebody else has a new one. So we'll see how that changes things or if it fades back into it's cheaper to uh, get cable again. Let's just reboot Gilligan's Island. <laughs> no, <laughs> it's only space. a three-hour tour. Oh yeah, yeah. I was going to say Gilligan's Island in space actually has some potential. Now that you mention it, well, isn't that Lost in Space though? <laughs> kind of. Yeah. yeah, kind. And they're rebooting that one on Netflix. It's actually pretty good. Yeah, the, the, two seasons. They're good. The nice thing about space opera is you can take basically any story and just say in space. <laughs> True. All right, so this one I'm not sure is on your uh, list, but uh, what are some of the most iconic books in the field that everybody reading space opera should read? And we'll start with you, Amy. Uh, Dune is the, is is really my number one. Okay, Dan. Yeah, that's my number one too. Uh, my my other favorites are Hyperion and the uh, Gap Cycle by Stephen R. Donaldson. Okay. And uh, what about you, Joe? You know, I love Dune. But you kind of have to read it three times to really get it, and it's kind of dense. I wouldn't start with Dune if you're if you're not familiar with the genre. Um, I'd start with Ender's Game. I think Ender's Game is really good. Good one. Uh, what about you, Terry? The Miles Vorkskin Saga by Lois McMaster Bejold. I like Terry's taste in books and movies. Good to know. Um, <laughs> and what was the, I got the Lois McMaster Bejold? What was the name of the series? The Miles, Miles maybe the it may be the Vorksigan saga. I'm not sure it what, how it's done. Saga. It's, yeah. How's it pronounced? Is it Vorkosigan? Vorkosigan. Yeah, yeah. That, that's correct. I don't know. I'm not brave enough to mispronounce it in front of Tony Weisskopf. <laughs> <laughs> I dare you. I double dare you. She's heard me mispronounce so much shit. It's. I don't know why she still talks to me. All right, and uh, as we bring this puppy to a close. Um, Roundtable, can you tell listeners how they can find you? And as usual, all of the contacts will be in the show notes below, dear listener. So, Amy, how can the listeners find you? So, I publish under AK Duboff, and you can find me at amyduboff.com. And of course, just searching Amazon for AK Duboff. And uh, I, you can also go to catacol.com, and that will take you to the landing page for the Catacol Universe stuff uh, on my main domain. Okay, Joe. Uh, excuse me, Dan. Dan I almost yeah. forgot Dan. Wow. <laughs> That's all right. Joe can go first. I don't mind. Right when you're doing it wrong. Oh, my God. <laughs> Repeat after me. A, B, C. <laughs> <laughs> that was not on my ads up. All right. I don't want to hear it. 
Oh, you can find all of my stuff at jdsawyer.net, and you can listen to my daily podcast for writers about creativity and autodidacticism and general writing stuff at everydaynovelist.com. I'm on Twitter, Facebook, all the usual places, but uh, yeah, I'm pretty easy to find. All right, Joe? Cool. Yeah, um, my website is 1001 Parsecs. Just Google that and you'll find it. Um, I'm Joe Vasicek. You can search me on, find my books on Amazon or Goodreads. Um, best way to follow me is to sign up for my newsletter. Um, I give away a free ebook, uh, people who sign up and, uh, yeah. All right. And all of that will be in the show notes, a usual dear listener and Terry, where can listeners find you? Should you, uh, have not offended them already? Well, if I haven't offended you yet, just rest assured, I will get around to you. You can find me uh, for social media. You can find me on Facebook because I think Twitter is just a cesspit and I have no intention of going there. You can find my books on Amazon. Uh, You can best find me by going to sign up for my newsletter at terrymixon.com because I also give away a a free novella and And that's where you can get me. I have pictures. All right. And you can find us at our website, www.sfshenanigans.com, our Twitter at SFS underscore show at Sierra Foxtrot Sierra underscore show. Our email is podcast at sfshenanigans.com. Any hate mail, however, will be rediverted to Terry Mixon at terrymixon.com. <laughs> and our shenanigans Facebook group is facebook.com backslash groups backslash SF shenanigans. I'll just send all the hate mail to Paul. That's what I do anyway. Thank you for spending some of your precious time with us. For Chris Winder and Seska Smalls, I'm J.R. Hanley, and this was the Sci-Fi Shenanigans Podcast. We'll be back next week at the same time where we'll indulge our love of space and all things that go boom. All right. Thank you for sticking with us through that uh, archived episode that was in the uh in the digital memory hole that we found we thought you'd enjoy it so thank you for spending some of your precious time with us for nick garber and doc seska i am jr hanley and this was the archive for the blasters and blades podcast we'll be back at our regular scheduled time where we'll indulge our love of nerd culture cheesy jokes and all things that go boom